Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Dan Horan and Ellen Culp. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame. Alan is a faculty in residence at Baldwin Wallace University and former holder of the university's chair in Faith and Life. He also serves on the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Mary Froelich. Mary is a sister of the Society of the Sacred Heart, and she is a professor emerita of spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, where she taught from 1993 to 2020. She is a noted scholar of Carmelite spirituality, <clears throat> excuse me, with numerous published essays on Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, and John of the Cross, as well as on broader issues in the tradition. Her book, Breathed into Wholeness, Catholicity and Life in the Spirit, was published by Orvis Books in 2019. She is currently completing another book entitled The Heart at the Heart of the World. She lives in Cam Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she busies herself in writing and eco-spirituality ministry. Here now is Mary Froelich speaking on Merton as disciple and reinterpreter of St. John of the Cross. Mary? So let us pray. Uh, we want to give thanks to God tonight for this opportunity to be together in the presence of two um, very holy and very intrepid followers of Christ, St. John of the Cross and Thomas Merton. Uh, we, we pray for the, for the openness of our own hearts and spirits to the wisdom that these men um, have brought forth in the world and um, our openness to one another as we, as we um, learn from them. We make this prayer in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Teresa already indicated, this is the title, Thomas Merton as Disciple and Reinterpreter of St. John of the Cross. And right from the beginning, I'm going to say, uh, or, or admit, I guess, <laughs> that I am not really a Merton scholar. Um, and it was about three years ago, I think, that Dan Horan asked me to give this talk um, at a conference that he was sponsoring at Catholic Theological Union uh, when I was still teaching there. And uh, so it gave me the opportunity to, to learn more about Merton. And um, however, my my knowledge of Merton is is somewhat focused within this particular topic, and it's really given me. Uh, I, I mean, since I knew John of the Cross more at that point, um, I it's given me a way of, of of really appreciating Merton through this lens. And just as a way of starting out, there's an article that on this topic of, of Merton and John of the Cross that Christopher Nugent wrote in Mystics Quarterly in 1995. The article's title is Born on the Borders of Spain. And actually that the borders of on the borders of Spain comes from Merton's own description of where he was born. And uh, Nugent said of these two great men, he said, John of the Cross uh, lived from 1542 to 91, 
and Thomas Merton, 1915 to 1968, were not just two great contemplative theologians. They were also religious reformers, ecclesiastical malcontents, and free spirits. Members of religious communities, they were both possessed of an aramidical turn, and as it happens, were both tempted to take up with the Carthusians. Both were attuned to what Thomas Traherne called the real whispering instinct of nature. So right there, we already see some parallels. But uh, what we're going to be looking at today is, uh, or tonight, is more specifically what um, John, uh, what Tom, Tom, Thomas Merton learned from John. So the question that is being considered is whether Merton is, in a real sense, the disciple of John of the Cross. And by the way, in this particular presentation, whenever I say John, I mean John of the Cross uh, specifically. I'm not going to spell out his name every time. Um, and um, one of the elements of this is that that both of them were, which you might call contemplative theologians or monastic theologians, rather than uh, the more the more what we call academic or scholastic theologians. They both had training within, to a degree, within academic and scholastic theology, but their own personal bent and their real gift is more in the monastic and contemplative theology that, that has a more experiential base. Uh, it's focused very explicitly toward spiritual transformation and strongly uses images and symbols more so than systematic analysis. And we see in Merton, you know, he try and well, both of them we see actually trying to write in a more scholastic style, and yet their best work is done when they shift over to the, the more contemplative style. And Merton in some ways, I think, is uh in in a good sense, he's a rhetorician, and meaning that he's someone who writes to provoke and to evoke, um, and to to evoke transformation in in other people. Um, Glenn Hinson, who wrote about Merton, said that Merton Mertonized everything that that went through his mind and 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 i think as we'll see as we'll see that is, is especially true as merton matures that then discovers his own voice that uh he, even though you can see the foundations from which he drew that it becomes really his own um as he assimilates the tradition and speaks it in a very fresh way so we could say that what um, Merton did ultimately was uh, was a real critical reappropriation of of John of the Cross. He took John of the Cross's basic concepts and put them in dialogue with uh, contemporary authors, authors from today's world, as well as his own experience, and uh, makes a very creative reinterpretation. So first, I'm going to just go kind of through some of the history of Merton's um, encounter with and and uh, relationship with John of the Cross. This is I'm not going to be able to go into every detail, but uh, some of the main highlights. First, Merton encounters John of the Cross when he is a student at Columbia. So still in his 20s. Um, 
And he is just beginning to discover his desire to be a saint. So he goes out and he buys a volume of John of the Cross. He says, at great cost. <laughs> and he begins to read and to underline passages. And uh, this is what he says in Seven Story Mountain about that first encounter. It turned out that it would take more than that to make me a saint. Because these words I underlined, although they amazed and dazzled me with their import, were all too simple for me to understand. They were too naked, too stripped of all duplicity and compromise for my complexity, perverted by many appetites. So, of course, that's his commentary uh, after he's gone into the monastery on his uh, initial encounter with John of the Cross. So in 1941, Merton enters the monastery of Gethsemane, and at his solemn profession in 1950, he took John's book called The Precautions as the standard for his religious life. Um, about 11 years later, in 1952, he wrote that despite being a Cistercian, he felt more actual sympathy for St. John of the Cross than for St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And it's noteworthy that he kept an inscription from John the, uh, over his writing desk. Uh, the inscription uh, said that at the end of our life, we will be judged by love. And uh, this was what um, he kept before him as, as, he, as he did his, his writing. Uh, another piece that I had not been so aware of is that Merton actually did was a was an artist as well as uh, as well as a writer. And during his religious life, he did forty drawings of John of the Cross. And this was the one that I was able to find um, on the internet. This one was done in nineteen fifty two. Now in nineteen fifty one, so while he's uh, just after his solemn profession, uh, and 10 years after he had entered the monastery, he wrote this book called Ascent to Truth, which was an attempt to bring together basically Thomas Aquinas and John of the Cross. Um, so he's doing a Thomist interpretation of, of, of John of the Cross. And um, in this book, which I have read parts of, not the whole thing, I have to admit, but He's there's two points that he seems to keep trying to make. And one is how important it is that we use reason as a guide for our contemplative life. Um, and the other point is that, on the other hand, there's there's a supernatural dimension that is is far greater than reason. And he really isn't able to bring this into an integrated perspective all that well. I mean, th th there's many beautiful passages in the book, and the book still remains popular with people who um, whose main theology is Thomist, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it is not particularly popular, I don't think, with, with the broader public at this point. Um, and he came to regard the book as a failure, and, and others have not um, given it high grades either. And there are other, again, these are sort of the highlights of his um, work with John of the Cross. These are not the only things, but the, the main times. 
1960, in a book uh, called Disputed Questions, which was a book of essays, two of the essays were uh, completely on Carmelite themes. Uh, one was entitled Light in Darkness, and it was an apologia for John's asceticism, basically, because you know often John's asceticism gets a bad rap. People think he's too harsh or whatever. And so Thomas Merton is um, developing the point that, that, that the asceticism of John of the Cross actually leads to uh, freedom, peace, and deep interior silence. And then in the other essay in that book, which was called The Primitive Carmelite Ideal, he was exploring the tension between the hermit life and the community life, which is a basic tension within the Carmelite ideal, because they were hermits in community, or they are hermits in community. Um, and it was obviously something that attracted Merton, too, very much. He he lived in community and yet was strongly attracted to the hermit life. And in that essay also discusses the prophetic dimension of Carmelite life. Carmelite um, life, the, 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 the assertion is that, that Elijah was the founder of of the Carmelite community, and, and nowadays that, that isn't that's recognized as not historically true, but that, that nonetheless Elijah is is a model for for Carmelites, and so the prophetic dimension of a uh, deeply contemplative life. And um, in 1961, uh, he wrote, uh, Thomas Merton wrote, New, New Seeds of Contemplation. And Christopher Nugent, who's the person I mentioned as having done a more thorough study of this question, um, says that Merton, this, that this book is Merton's finest work. And uh, he says that the contemplative core of the work would seem to be John of the Cross, as Glenn Hinson put it in one of his presentations, Mertonized. <laughs> that is, Merton trimmed the edges and made it his own. And actually, over the past month, I, I, I started. I went back and started reading the New Seeds of Contemplation. I didn't. Again, I didn't get through the whole thing, but but I was just reading a, a section each day, and I I, I, I really do strongly affirm what um, Nugent says is that. It, it's it's very deeply informed by um, John of the Cross. However, also in 1962, they, there's a famous quotation, or it's famous among people who discuss this question anyway. Um, in a letter to his dear friend, Sister Madaleva, who, by the way, I believe was the founder of St. Mary's College, where or one, where where this. Um, is being sponsored. <laughs> um, in this letter, Merton wrote, whereas in the old days I used to be crazy about John of the Cross, now I would not exchange him for Julian of Norwich if you gave me the world and the Indies and all the Spanish mystics rolled up in one bundle. Uh, now, of course, that's a rash statement that he's making there. <laughs> uh, and um, But it is a point in his life when he's starting to really explore and um, explore all kinds of new perspectives and kind of free himself from the strictures of, of, a, of, of a more classical viewpoint. Although this is not to say that he truly rejects the more classical viewpoint, that it is that he's beginning to see what else he can um, integrate into that. 
And uh, so this is a period, this period is when he starts to explore the English mystics and obviously becomes very enamored of them. Um, However, um, again, Christopher Nugent and others don't really believe that this was quite as complete of a turn as he expresses it here in this particular quotation. Um, It's clear that Merton needed something from Julian of Norwich. He needed the 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 luminosity the to say the tender dimension of her way of approaching god the motherly dimension of her approaching uh, god and um he needed some have said he needed the the femininity in that sense that he, that that he was beginning to um search for a way to integrate a more feminine um perspective within his life so he learned a lot from julian and um, uh, she remains important, but never as foundational as John of the Cross. And then the next period, or this period from then until his death, so the, the, from 1962 to 1968, his maturation and his claiming of his own voice uh, accelerates rapidly. He's exploring during this time and writing about Taoism and Gandhi and Zen and uh, and many other um, exploratory topics. He's entering actively into anti-war and social justice advocacy. Uh, During the latter part of this time, he lives in a hermitage and then travels to Asia, where, of course, he dies. Uh, When he went to the hermitage, the complete works of John of the Cross were among the books that he took with him. And by the way, the background on this slide is a photo of that that Merton took t- during this period. He took up uh, photography as a um, kind of Zen practice, and um, most of the fo- the photos are um, still lives, you might say. I mean, they're 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 na- na- the pictures of nature or of simple objects. They're not of they're mostly not of people. And then um, the book uh, in 1968, or actually I think it was it was published posthumously, which has come to be named Contemplative Prayer, uh, was his last completed work. He strongly reaffirms classical themes of the monastic and contemplative traditions, and yet in a truly contemporary idiom. Um, Christopher Nugent's analysis of this finds that he included, there were included in this book, 20 uh, citations of John of the Cross, which was twice as many as of any other author. And there was not a single citation of Julian of Norwich. So in some ways, he he comes back to his, his roots there. So in order to go deeper into this, first I need to do, say a little bit more about the John of the Cross and what his basic teaching was. Um, and uh, in order to understand John, you need to realize that, that there are like three concentric frameworks of his spirituality. The first being and the core being the poetry of neutral romance, the lover and the beloved. Uh, the second being the story of the ascent of the mountain, Mount Carmel. Um, 
And then the third being the discursive explanation of the first two. And the problem that most people have in reading John of the Cross is that when you pick up, if you get pick up this book, the book that's pictured, and you you know start reading on page one, you are you really get mired down in the discursive explanation, um, and off it, it's it's very it's, he uses a lot of scholastic language and re- repetition and what seems like kind of a harsh asceticism on the level of this discursive explanation, but actually. Um, he he says as he's doing this that he's trying to explain the poetry, <laughs> um, and so I always recommend to anybody who wants to study John of the Cross is you know don't pick up this book and read it, or if you do, go to the back and find the poetry. Uh, and after you've thoroughly immersed yourself in the poetry, then you can go back and try to read, try to see what he's getting at as he explains it. Another element that's important is that his basic anthropology, uh, his understanding of the human person is that we're constructed as with a lower or exterior part, which includes the sensory faculties, that is the five exterior senses, the fantasy, which is not not fantasy with an F, but with a PH, which means the archives of sensory memory and the imagination. And then the, the, the other part of the human person is the higher or interior part, the the spiritual faculties of memory, intellect, and will. So this is a very typical anthropology of the time, but he refers to it over and over again. Now, this time I'm going to sort of break my own rule, and I'm going to give a short discursive (laughs) statement of what I understand John of the Cross to be all about. Um, He is teaching that God is infinite love and infinite light beyond the capacity of our sensory and spiritual faculties in their ordinary functioning. Therefore, to be fulfilled and integrated in the radical love of God, we must be emptied of all objects of our attention, whether sensory or spiritual, and only that way can we advance in union with God in the dark night of faith. However, poetry is much better. <laughs> so I'm just this is, I'm going to uh, read two verses from two of John's poems. The first is a, the poem that he entitled "Dark Night," and it gives a very different picture of the night than um, than we often hear. So in the this is just one verse of the longer poem, but it says, "O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn." O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. So this is the night of love. Um, this is the, the night in which the, the lover and the beloved come together. Um, the night that is more lovely than the dawn. It's a, it's a, it's a totally positive image of the night. Whoops. And this is from a different poem called Spiritual Canticle. It uses a little bit different imagery, but basically the same love story. In the inner wine cellar, I drank of my beloved. And when I went abroad through all this valley, I no longer knew anything and lost the herd that I was following. 
So the image of the, the inner wine cellar and the image of the um, unknowing the being drawn into, again, the night or the, the unknowing of union with the beloved. So as you can see, the poetry, uh, the poetry evokes in us a, a sense of mystery and love, whereas the more discursive version may not so clearly evoke that. And uh, everybody's heard of John's dark night, but it's important to realize that he talked about four nights. Um, the active night of the senses in which the seeker does all she can to wean the sense faculties from their inordinate pleasure. So this is the typical ascetical practice. The passive night of the senses in which God completes the purification of the senses. Then the active night of the spirit in which the seeker learns to let go of the attachments of the higher faculties of intellect, memory, and will. But this is still done, uh, at least to some degree, by our own um, activity. And then finally, the passive night of the spirit in which God purifies a person of the deepest roots of, of all their imperfections. And it's the passive night of the spirit where the sort of um, very painful and very difficult language um, shows up where, where that, that the person feels as if everything is going wrong, as if the, whole, the world is backwards, as if they've lost God, abandoned by God, and so on. So that, that this, is, this is a very, very difficult and painful passage in the spiritual life. So out of that, that was just a brief uh, review of John of the Cross. What did um, Merton particularly reinterpret? So I think that uh, just as a preview that Merton got a glimpse of spiritual liberty, perhaps even when he was quite young, as often people do, but that he was horrified by the realization of the deceit and shallowness of the usual normal way of life. Um, and so he, he got, he, he was studying philosophy and psychology and he, he got, he got, he developed these concepts of the true self and the false self. Um, the true self being spiritual liberty, false self being this deceit and shallowness. Um, and he saw in John of the Cross, this practical and very classical Christian method for moving from what he understood as the false self to the true self. Um, so the purification of the faculties through active and passive nights is at the heart of John's spiritual method and at the heart of Merton's as well. So we're going to look at three aspects of this, uh, looking more closely at the um, false self, true self, and how that reinterprets John's old self, new self. Secondly, Merton's asceticism for the liberation of the true self as a reinterpretation of John's active nights of the soul. And then his Merton's existential dread as a reinterpretation of John's passive night of the spirit. So first, this, these concepts of false self, true self, um, which are among the more well-known of Merton's concepts, uh, philosophically, he was uh, Merton was um, had studied and and uh, greatly appreciated the philosophy of Jacques Maritain, who thought that the material pole of the human being is the individual, while the spiritual pole is the person. So the the language there, the material pole 
or the individual tends toward dispersion because every every individual is trying to gain for themselves, whereas the spiritual pole or the person tends toward the common good through authentic interiority that enables choices based in reason and justice. And another philosopher that was very important for Merton was Daniel C. Walsh, who is not well known other than his relationship with Merton because Walsh didn't write very much, but he was a teacher at Columbia when Merton was in his youthful, uh, you know, seeking sainthood phase. And uh, Walsh became a close friend and mentor of Merton. And Walsh taught that the, the concept of person is um, the, the unobjectifiable relation to God that is more foundational than our nature or our individuality. So personhood is relationality in, in Walsh's, um, uh, it, it is it is literally the relation with God that, through which uh, the image of God is um, is lived. Uh, and that is deeper than what could be called our nature or certainly than our individuality. <clears throat> so John of the Cross uh, uses the language of the old self and the new self. And this is some quotations from um, John's book again these are the discursive part of his writing but he he was explaining a poem called the living flame and he he wrote what the soul calls death is all that goes to make up the old self the entire engagement of the faculties memory intellect and will in the things of the world and the indulgence of the appetites in the pleasures of creatures All that is the activity of the old life, which is the death of the new spiritual life. The soul is unable to live perfectly in this new life if the old self does not die completely. The apostle warns, quote, take off the old self and put on the new self, who according to God is created in justice and holiness. In this new life that the soul lives when it has arrived at the perfect union with God, all the inclinations and activity of the appetites and faculties, which of its own in the old self was the operation of death and the privation of the spiritual life, become divine. So Anne Carr, uh, in her book, Search for Wisdom and Spirit, um, observes that up to, uh, at least up until 1949, um, Merton was understanding false self and true self through a kind of nature and supernature um, language that almost makes them into evil versus good. That is the false self being evil and the true self being good, a kind of a, a radical distinction. As he matured, he he moved away from that and 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 uh, that the false the false self um, or the external self is cannot be literally equated with with evil, um, and that at that that was also the stage when he thought that the 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 chief way one could leave behind the false self was by withdrawing from the world that is by entering a monastery. Um, that that as long as one was out in the world, one was caught up in its sham dramas 
and that we you could leave all that behind by entering the monastery. And of course, you learn in the monastery that that wasn't it wasn't so easy. <laughs> um, she identifies uh, one of his books called Waters of Siloe um, as a kind of a beginning, or just the beginning of a turning point when he was focusing on the patristic idea of the distinction between the likeness of God and the image of God. The, 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 even though in the Bible itself, those two words, image and likeness of God, were not probably didn't really mean much different from each other, but the, the, the patristic writers, many of them developed it in terms of the image of God being, we're born with the image of God, but that we have to grow into the likeness of God. And, um, so Carr sees his study of that as, as a moving away from that sort of good versus evil understanding. Um, and that culminates in his book, Inner Experience, when the contrast is recognized as more of a exterior self um, versus the hidden and inner self. And that really is more true to what his philosophical um, mentors we're saying in any case, uh, and it's also more true to what John of the Cross was attempting to say. So uh, this is, well, maybe I'll put up both quotations at once, but um, John writing of the, um, the center, the depth, the, the true self says the soul center is God. The more degrees of love it has, the more deeply it enters into God and, and centers itself in him. We can say that there are as many centers in God possible to the soul, each one deeper than the other, as there are degrees of love of God possible to it. Um, so one, the one never finishes uh, entering more and more deeply into the, the true self, which is God. Um, so Merton, right, using his contemporary language, it's a great mistake to confuse the person, the spiritual and hidden self united with God, with the exterior empirical self, the psychological individuality who forms a kind of mask for the inner and hidden self. The outer self is nothing but an evanescent shadow. So secondly, looking at Merton's asceticism for the liberation of the true self as a reinterpretation of John's active nights. So John wrote in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, I affirm then that if people take faith as a good guide to this state, not only must they live in darkness in the sensory and lower part of their nature concerning creatures and temporal things, but they must also darken and blind themselves in that part of their nature that bears relation to God and spiritual things. Since this transformation and union is something that does not fall within the reach of the senses and of human capability, the soul must perfectly and voluntarily empty itself. I mean, in its affection and will of all the earthly and heavenly things it can grasp. It must do this insofar as it can. So Merton, writing in New Seeds of Contemplation, says, In a word, we must face with great resoluteness the task of going beyond ordinary temperance and strive for complete emptiness if we seek to pass beyond the limitations of human virtuousness and enter into the perfect freedom of the sons of God for whom all things are light. 
the mystic lives in emptiness, in freedom, as if he had no longer a limited and exclusive self that distinguishes him from God and other people. And then thirdly, uh, Merton's writing about existential dread can be seen as a reinterpretation of John's passive night of the spirit. John wrote, as the, in, in, and this is in his book called Dark Night, um, as fire consumes the tarnish and rust of metal, this contemplation in the passive night of the spirit annihilates, empties, and consumes all the affections and imperfect habits the soul contracted throughout its life. Since these imperfections are deeply rooted in the substance of the soul, it usually suffers, in addition to this poverty, this natural and spiritual emptiness and oppressive undoing and an inner torment. Sometimes this experience is so vivid that it seems to the soul that it sees hell and perdition open up before it. And Merton, writing in uh, Contemplative Prayer, his last um, completed work, the only full and authentic purification is that which turns a person completely inside out so that one no longer has a self to defend, no longer an intimate heritage to protect against imagined inroads and dilapidations. Now we can understand that the full maturity of the spiritual life cannot be reached unless we first pass through the dread, anguish, trouble, and fear that necessarily accompany the inner crisis of spiritual death in which we finally abandon our attachment to our exterior self and surrender completely to Christ. So, um, just as a couple of concluding comments, um, one of the questions that... Uh, has come up is whether these two men, uh, one of the places where they really are in contrast um, is on the question of social consciousness. Hans Erths von Balthasar wrote that in John of the Cross, there is a yawning gap where the church should be. Um, and both Teresa of Avila and Therese of Lisieux, the other best known Carmelites, uh, do more explicitly prioritize the social and apostolic aspect of contemplation than, than John of the Cross does. Um, and certainly, as is well known, Merton um, did prioritize the social apostolic element. Um, uh, he says in his essay, Is the Contemplative Life Finished? Uh, he says, yes, if it is understood as tranquil withdrawal, but no, if it is understood as the task and the gift of self-discovery. Um, by this time, he no longer thinks that you know entering the monastery is the ultimate solution, but he recognizes that new forms of the contemplative life will need to develop. Um, and he writes, the heart of the contemplative life will emerge wherever persons probe deeply the question of the self and the question of God in openness to concrete history as the world of the self's experience. But I think one quotation from John, and really my one of my favorite quotations from him, um, is when he says about the love of God and, and entering totally into the love of God. He says, these acts of love are most precious. One of them is more meritorious and valuable than all the deeds a person may have performed in their whole life without this transformation, however great. 
they may have been. And um, so I think that would be, uh, I think it would probably be Merton's point of view as well, although he lived it uh, in a very different way, but that, that for him, as for John of the Cross, the priority and the foundation of any prophetic witness um, for social justice and of any uh, just action has to be that contemplative union with God. Yeah, Mary, thank you so much for that. <clears throat> In some ways, you leave me reeling. What, I, what I'd really like to do now that you've gone through it is to say, okay, let's take a break and go through it again, because I think knowing what's coming, I would I would be able to begin to grasp fully. But fascinating look at John and the cross and Merton. So I'm going to ask a couple questions that come out of just my own awareness. I hear people sometimes saying things like, oh, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. They don't even use dark night of the sense or the spirit. They'll say, well, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. I don't have a clue whether they have anything in mind about John the Cross or Merton. But um, do you think that's a, is that an appropriate kind of sloppy way of contemporary people uh, understanding what the more complex John of the Cross look is to say, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. Well, I guess the the first thing I would say is that um, I would agree that the dark night of the soul doesn't always take a, like a strictly spiritual form. But I mean, in other words, all the things that happen to us can be a part of that asceticism and stripping and um, maturation. And so it, it isn't, you know, and, and so everything that happens to us, like when you lose a job or you have a, you know, spectacular failure in your life or you get sick or, uh, you know, someone very close to you dies, all of those are parts of life and that, that they, that they participate in our um, spiritual well, if you want to call it that, the the, the stripping or the the the, uh, the purification, insofar as we um, have that as our perspective. So I don't think people are completely wrong if they're saying that they um, that they're experiencing something very difficult and they call that a dark night of the soul. I do think that the the really sort of technical dark night of the soul is the passive night of the spirit that the the sort of ultimate um so when and and that is not a common experience i don't think i mean i I think it's something that really is um well i'm not going to say it has to happen in a monastery that's definitely not true but that that it, it probably is is more likely to be people that that are very very committed to the to the spiritual journey um who would undergo that dimension as he described it. But I, so I guess in a way, I'm kind of saying yes and no. I think every human being is on this spiritual journey and that there's, that, that there's elements of what John is talking about that can be applied to everybody who is sincerely seeking to mature toward life in God that there is kind of a technical element to that final trans, trans um, transformation that he's trying to describe in the passive night of the, the technical in the sense that it's, 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 it is more specific, I guess he might say. 
I'm, I'm going to stay in this arena for just a bit. And, and what, what I'm going to ask you may be unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I could imagine someone saying, well, that, that dark night of the soul spirit sense thing is, I understand the spiritual aspect of it. Um, to what degree is it also just merely a psychological thing around which we put a spiritual interpretation? So have you done any thinking either with John or perhaps less so with Merton about how you nuance out what is the psychological and what is the spiritual? Yeah, well, you know, there's been a number of articles that have been written on the question of what's the relationship between depression and dark night. And um they come to they come to varying conclusions, but one of the conclusions is that they are talking that that, that you can, you need to make the distinction between the psychological depression, if that's and the the spiritual dark night. You need to make the distinction, but that in actual life that doesn't that they they may be occurring as one. I mean that is, the, the per, a person could be both depressed and and uh, experiencing a dark night. Um, you know, the famous case being um, Mother Teresa is, you know, what was she experiencing? Because the, the, she, but because the, the, she did experience um, apparently very deep depression. But um, I, so again, I think that, that it's important to distinguish that there, that, that they, we're, when we're talking about the personhood in God, that, that we are talking about the dimension, so to speak, that that is not limited to simply to our psychology, but in actual life, we are never apart from our psychology. I mean, that is, we are as we we are a one person experiencing life, and so um, it's 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 helpful to distinguish them in, in understanding because you know it's like what do you need to do if you. Uh, when if a person is depressed, there are certain things that they need to do, you know, possibly get professional help or other <clears throat> things that they need to do to help with the depression. If if they are experiencing a dark night, they, they need to have spiritual guidance. And so some people will need both in order to proceed through the, the passage that they're in in life. And other people really maybe one is more appropriate than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get you off this hook now. So to something else, I I was intrigued by your your middle of the three points in the Merton in reinterpretation of John of the Cross, where you talked about Merton's asceticism uh, is be, becomes in a sense a tool for the liberation of the true self. If I caught that just right, could you say a little more about how you think asceticism can be uh, liberating for our true self, whether you're in the monastery or not? Well, I mean, uh, in some ways, I think it's it's pretty simple. If if you're constantly absorbed in um, seeking pleasure and comfort, or um, that that uh, you're not you're not able to really make make good choices because you know that's your whole focus. I mean, I, I don't think I have necessarily anything very creative to say about it, but because I think it's very obvious that that a certain level of of um 
I don't, you know, we're not talking about harsh asceticism necessarily. And I think Merton, when he was young, as is often the case with with spiritually zealous people, um, you know, he he did envision a somewhat, and John of the Cross too, the both of them, they, they, when they were young, envisioned a, a harsher kind of asceticism. And as they matured, it was more the, the, the you know, the disciplined life and the, um, being able to ask the questions about what you're doing, you know, uh, I think that's in some ways that's the, that's the key is that, that is not just to be reactive into I want this I go for it, but to be able to ask the question, you know, is this uh, is this is this going to is this good? Is this what's going to lead me to where I want to go? Um, and to kind of have that 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 degree of detachment from the from the impulse to to seek um the pleasant and the comfortable (laughs) on another vein you clearly shared some of the poetry of john the cross perhaps many of us don't know john the cross either at all or or very well compared to how we know merton so it was fun to see the poetry because um, I, I certainly resonated when when you talked about starting with John the Cross and you start with the discur- discursive explanation, you feel like, oh my gosh, I just jumped into the deep end and I'm drowning. Um, but I appreciated that poetry. It was good to see them side by side because it was amazing how in some ways clear the poetry was and drew you in. At least that was my experience. And what you did was provoke me to thinking about uh, Thomas Merton also was a poet. I mean, the the book of complete poems is a really big rascal. He he did some of his best stuff with poetry. You think of Hagia Sophia and some other things. Um, and one of the things that Olivia Espen comments on is, you know, John the Cross is writing in Spanish. And so we've got the problem with translation there. Have Have you worked any with the Spanish into English? I don't know whether you've done that sort of thing, but um, at least Merton was writing in English, so we don't have that translation problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can read Spanish um, more or less. And John of the Cross, uh, it, well, poetry is always difficult in another language, but his his prose actually isn't too difficult compared to Teresa. I did my dissertation on Teresa, and her Spanish is awful, but because she writes in this very convoluted way. Um, but John of the Cross writes in a much his Spanish is at least in his discursive writings is is very clear, um, and and it really is true as is always true for poetry that it's definitely best in the original language. But I just reiterate again to anybody who doesn't know John of the Cross is, you know, go f- find the poetry, and if you can read it in Spanish, that's best. But obviously, many people can't, so it's it's good in English too, and. Um, his best poetry is really love poetry. Um, I mean, it's the it's it's the romance. It's it's the lover and the beloved. I, his other poetry is good too, but um, I think his best poetry is the love poetry, mm-hmm. which is which is the heart again to realize that what John of the Cross that was. I think the poetry expresses his. <laughs> his real experience insofar as you can get to that with somebody. Uh, whereas his prose expresses his understanding of how he ought to teach this to people. Um, 
and especially because of the the time and culture gap uh, between his time and ours, it makes the 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 prose even more challenging for us. Mm-hmm. Our own Teresa has a Sandok has a interesting question for you. Merton once said, "I love beer and therefore the world." Our question for you is. For Merton and John, is there a way that they can both enjoy the sensory world and at the same time achieve spiritual depth? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, again, I think this question of, of asceticism is challenging because actually I wrote a paper on John of the Cross, uh, an article on John of the Cross and his love of nature. And he has some really sort of almost ecstatic passages on the natural world I, I, that um, he is, and in a sense, I think, especially as he matured into his spiritual maturity, he experienced a oneness with creation and a, and a, and a, and a tremendous love of, of the whole created world. Um, and I, I think that's true of Merton too, although again, I don't know Merton nearly as well, but um, so asceticism you know, again, in in youth, both of them, and this is very typical, and it, that 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 one in, interprets asceticism as abandonment of the senses, and I think in maturity, it's <laughs> again, it's 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 not um, leaving the sense world behind, but it's being able to to make use of the senses without being swallowed up in them i guess you might say you know to 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 to, to appreciate and and to see them and see the, the the things of the senses in their place um and and to be able to let them go when you need to i mean that that uh, for the sake of love i mean that that you aren't you know the sort of addiction to i mean not even in the classical or the um, full sense of addiction but that all of us probably sometimes feel like we we are drawn to something that we really should. It would be better if we let it go, and so so I think it, it is. It's a it's a maturation process uh, that, and I certainly, again, having studied John of the Cross more more fully, but I I would see that in in Merton as well. A little that I know about him. Good. Let me pick up on that last piece that you, you certainly come to us as. As a as a seasoned scholar in Carmelite spirituality, and and have helped us tie that to Merton tonight. How do you think doing this presentation has affected the way you might um, understand and appreciate Merton? Mm-hmm. Well, it's given me a, a a way into Merton and a way to um, appreciate him. I think I previously I had read snippets i guess you might say of, of merton and while i liked his his writing i i didn't have a grasp of of his point of view i guess you might say i i i read it more like as something interesting i guess and and helpful but but now i i feel like i have much more of a grasp of of who merton is and what he was trying to teach now again i have to acknowledge that other scholars, I, I, I've taken a, a very specific point of view into Merton, and this is not to say that John of the Cross is the only 
uh, influence on him. Obviously, the, he was influenced by, by hundreds of different um, spiritual and um, secular thinkers and writers. And other people could do presentations showing how much his perspective was shaped by them. But it, it, for me, it has given me this 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 um, this real sense of him. And I, I would guess I would offer that to other people that that it is a way of 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 getting a fairly quick, I guess, grasp of of, of the sort of um, system, I guess you could say, out of which he's he's operating and what he's what he's trying to integrate uh, all these other things into. Yeah, good. Well, I've set you up for one, an invitation this summer to come to St. Mary's and, and be a part of the Thomas Burton uh, gathering for three or four days, the conference. It should be a lot of fun and we'll expand your knowledge of Merton. Um, and with this, I'm going to ask the last question and then throw it back to Teresa. I'm always interested in uh, the kind of so what. Um, as you've worked now with Carmelite theology and you've helped us take a look at Merton reinterpreting John of the Cross. Do you could you offer some practical tips for the typical lay Christian for their spiritual growth? What kinds of practical tips might emerge from what you've um, given us tonight? Well, um, well, I mean, one is to to remember that it's a love story, <laughs> you know that that uh, and. The analogy of a love story um, is helpful. I mean, even in the ascetical dimensions of of that, you know, what will you give up for someone you love, or what will you, what are you willing to let go of for someone you love? It's it's a very different way, you know. Rather than thinking about asceticism as kind of this this um, athletic endeavor, which is often the way it kind of is presented, but but that that asceticism is a love story. What do parents give up for their children? What does what does a um you know the bride and bridegroom give up for each other um is a is a much healthier and and um, joyful way of thinking about uh, one's asceticism. Um and um I, I guess the um, yeah, you know, to to be aware of this when you're when when you're thinking about these concepts of the true self and the false self, um, to take note of what Merton learned uh, that it it's not good and evil. It, it's it's um, it's the depths that un- what what you know the unobjectifiable relation with God as distinct from the the um, person that's involved in this very messy world. I mean that 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 is is, is doing as, as well as they can <laughs> in the midst of this very messy world, and, and that, to, to think about true and false not as sort of like absolute, but more that way as the the the, the inner deepest relation with God and the um, in the involved person, um, because I do think that that Merton's language can be misleading. I mean that that true and false, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's been discussed probably by many many other people. But um, that 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 it's it's something to be um, to be careful with. 
Thank you very much, Mary. Teresa? Mary, thank you so much for your conversation with us this evening and for bringing um, the um, contemplative, uh, Carmelite spirituality and particularly John of the Cross into our uh, conversation of, about Thomas Merton. It really was very informative and um, I appreciated it very much. Uh, this evening, we have Julia Fadder as um, the person who is uh, providing tech support. So thank you, Julia. She's uh, standing in for Dan Horan, who's uh, on leave at this point. Not really on leave, just taking his uh, spring break, I believe. Um, thank you, Alan, again, for so skillfully moderating the questions. I want to also thank Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts, and all of you for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. If you're a St. Augustine fan, you won't want to miss next month's webinar by Pat O'Connell, who will speak on Beyond the Blurbs, Thomas Merton and St. Augustine. Registration is now open at www.mertonitms.org. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and have a happy St. Patrick's Day. I look forward to seeing you next month.